Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter as we continue to worship together by reading and studying God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 3, and this morning we're going to be taking a look at verses 8 through 17. So Peter writes there, beginning in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. Give us ears to hear it now. We ask this, trusting your grace, and completely in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, if someone asked you about the good life, how would you depict it? Would you point to that magazine on your coffee table featuring smiling people, well-aged, with golf holes all around them, health tips, jacuzzis by the sea, hammocks blowing in the wind, inviting you to rest? Or would you illustrate a lovely morning for hunting in the quiet of woods, unstirred? Does a good life look like getting away from real life to you? Does it look like your best life now? The number one bestseller on the New York Times list of 
self-help books for two years and as of today has sold over 8 million copies to an American society that seems wired for prosperity by way of self-empowered positivity. God, its author claims, calls you precisely to that, your best life now. It's really just a, a crossless mirage of personal happiness. Or does a good life look more, more honest, a little more tied to reality? No frills or thrills, just a simple life really. The controlled, the, the well-manicured, the healthy life, the life of strictly sweet providence, the understandable desire to avoid pain and hardship in anything that might lead in that general direction. Well, thing is, how are we to reconcile any of that with really following Jesus and His life and His cross and His call upon our life? Don't misunderstand. Vacations are often necessary. The avoidance of harm is, is quite natural. But when we think of the good life, shouldn't we as Christians look first to the content of the best life ever lived? Shouldn't we let Jesus' life define the good life for us? And is there any doubt then that this would involve us in many crosses? My beloved, what if the good life, what if the good life is the godly life entrusted entirely to the Lord's care? What if the good life acts on an eternal perspective in doing God's kind of good to all comers, come what may? What if the good life is not your best life now, but endurance in the life that sought the best for Christ's glory and the good of souls in view of the life to come? What if it's a sojourning life? as an elect exile of God? What if at the present hour, the good life looks like rags that boast of true riches? What if it looks like pain in the path of peace? What if it looks like self-sacrifice in the way of serving souls? What if it looks like blessings upon those who are delivering the beatings? What if it looks like choosing the lowest place in light of a living hope? What if the good life is the life laid down? What if it looks like Christ crucified as a draw to the gospel? Beloved, the good life, as God's designed it, means to give us a grand stage to preach Christ. And it's to urge us to embrace this stage, that's Peter's burden, in this text. And so now we just want to come to it. Let's come to our text. There is first the content of the good life and then the contours of its grand stage. And so first let's see the content of the good life. And if you look there, you'll see in verse 8, Peter begins this way. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. All right, so we'll just pause right there. All right, what Peter's just said 
is that the good life cannot be lived apart from living well with the church, the body of Christ. As God reveals it, it has to do with keeping up gracious relations with those who in heart and in mind and in soul visibly belong to Jesus. First Peter, as we should know by now, refuses to let us think of the faithful Christian life in abstraction from the family of Christ. Right? Cruciform. That is, self-sacrificial commitment to this new creation community is priority number one of the good life for Peter. And Peter gives it five tightly knit marks. Again, he says unity of mind. He says sympathy. He says brotherly love. The key there is brotherly love. A tender heart and a humble mind. These five things, he says, are what glue us together as the people of Christ. They're what make us a refuge for one another amid the storms of this world, as well as a lighthouse to a darkened world headed for eternal shipwreck. These are our, we might call them, new birth marks. They show up among us when the gospel is alive and well within us. And this is the balance of them. This is what we must pursue if we would be what Christ died for us to be. We're to be humbly like-minded in truth and in purpose. And we're also to be tenderly big-hearted in all of our counsel and care. And Peter's saying, where we are agreeable, And where we are then also teachable in the truth of God's Word, while actively caring for one another in view of the cross with all sympathy and tenderness and that sincere, earnest, pure, brotherly love, Jesus will neither pause nor blush to call us His beloved people. Which is exactly how we want it to be. Because, as we are, as I said, we become two very needful things. For one, we become a shelter for each other. Over against a society around us, a culture around us, that's radiating division, no true sympathy, self-love, hard hearts, superiority complexes, and how that tends to interact intolerantly with real, faithful, biblical Christianity we ought to have a sweet and invigorating refuge in the family of Christ. I pray with all my heart that that's what we're becoming for one another. Beloved Peter's about to call us, listen, to love our enemies. To love our enemies. But what hope do we have of being faithful to Christ in that if we can hardly love the co-heir of grace and glory that's sitting right beside you. We're to be that spiritual house that we can enter and find not insult, but encouragement. Not harm, but help. Not nihilism, but new creation. Not isolation, but congregation. Not hypocrisy, but sincerity. Not hate, but love. Not the lie, but the truth. Not pride, but humility. Not nailers to the cross, but bearers of it. 
And as we are this for one another, what a testimony we will have to outsiders. I've seen, and I trust you have too, I've seen the power of a gracious community working upon a graceless heart. A loving church drawing upon the unloved soul. Right? A gospel people winning an unbelieving person to Christ who then called it, though undiscipled, a reality nearest heaven on earth. Right? And that's what I want us to be. Don't you want us to be and be used of God like that? Well, what do you think, beloved? Would we, do we as a church, pass the taste test for unbelievers? Whether in here or out there, in community or in abstraction, in publicity or relative privacy, when an unbeliever comes in among us, might they discern, please God let them discern, a difference between this people and their people. As light from dark, a lighthouse from the rocks, they ought to be able to tell a difference. Are we that city on a hill that cannot be hidden? It's not sinking back into the darkness, blending in, but standing out for Christ. And I pray so. The good life prioritizes gracious relations in the church. But as Peter goes on, you see it also pursues gracious relations with opponents. So he writes, verse 9, if you look there now. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And really, I mean, this has been the bulk of Peter's teaching since at least chapter 2, verse 11. Listen, if we're not blessing our enemies, Peter's saying we are missing out on the good life. That's so backwards from the way the world thinks. What's more, he says, we're not living in good faith with God's call upon our life. We're called to bless our enemies. And still further then, we're putting our blessing... In great jeopardy. So let's just break this down, starting with this. That an indispensable part of the good life, as God counts a good life, is a flesh and blood imitation of the grace Jesus modeled for us on His cross. Which demands so much grace in us. Right? You're not unaware. Just walk out there this afternoon. Turn on the news. Watch the world. Maybe watch your own home. And you know, it is not natural to defer vindication forward. It is not, it is, it's natural to retaliate. Right? It's natural to get even. It's natural to forego peace for war. But it's gracious to suspend judgment. It's gracious to rest in Christ's justification. 
It's gracious to bite your tongue and all the more to so control your tongue that you can redirect your tongue to bless your enemy instead of bash them. And beloved, listen. It's in this that so much of real Christianity is found. As Jesus, remember, said, not just in loving those who love us as in the church, but also in loving those who love to antagonize us as some in the world and perhaps in the church also. Generally, everybody loves those who love them. That takes no grace. But to love those who wrong you, to love those who take advantage of you, to love those who are sinning against you, to love those who injure you, that's a real work of Christ in you. And Peter then wants us to see that we, in whom Jesus dwells, cannot be otherwise. We cannot be hateful towards our haters. We cannot be contrary to the ethic of the cross and at the same time be faithful to God. Can't do it. So important we hear that. Submitting to injury and blessing our enemies is part, Peter says, of our calling. We're called to it. When God called us to Jesus, He called us to love our enemies' souls more than we love our own lives. And beloved, this really should not be new news for us. When Christ called you to follow Him, what command went right before it? But, take up your cross and follow me. You see? If you have a job, you likely thumb through a a job description before taking the job. And having now taken that job, You're responsible for meeting its demands in a way that's pleasing to your boss. Right? Listen, Christ's demand of you was a moment-by-moment, daily, lifelong walk behind Him to Calvary. And when you were born again, and He became your treasure, You gladly accepted those terms if only to know and be known and be blessed by Him. And so now being saved by grace, you're very much responsible to show grace and to speak grace to those who only show and speak evil to you. It's our calling. So what about a motive to it? Peter says, we won't have God's blessing. We won't have God's blessing without blessing our enemies. Think about that. We won't have God's good without doing our enemies good. Is there even grace in us if we aren't gracious to the graceless? Peter makes it a legitimate question here. He doesn't mean this saves us. We know that. But he does mean 
If we are really saved, this is going to be our way in the world. Showing grace to our enemies proves the grace that obtains glory. Okay? You want to know that Christ's Beatitudes that Marianne read for us at the beginning of service refer to you? You want to know that those refer to you? You want to be assured of that? You need to learn to give Christ for crosses. Give Christ for crosses. Pursue gracious relations with your opponents. It's part of the good life. And the last so too is this. Persevering by faith in God's grace to you. And you will need this to endure the cross. So as grounds for what he said so far, you see there Peter quotes from Psalm 34. He says this, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And as I read that, what did we hear but the content of the good life reiterated along with its goal? You want to you wanna have a, a life to love? You want to live days defined as good? You want to own a good that boasts of glory? What's Peter quoting David here? What does he say? He says, speak no evil. Don't return reviling for reviling and all this kind of stuff. Speak no evil. Do no evil. But instead, when you suffer evil, seek peace and pursue it so far as it depends on you. That's what Peter's just said for us ahead of this psalm. But I do want us to see that he adds something very vital to this whole thing. Beloved, the good life is not the easy life. It's the hard life. It's the narrow path. It's the glorious cross-bearing life. And as such, it will prove quite difficult to endure. So I want you to hear a fact. You ready for it? Listen to this. The best life that's ever been lived in the history of the world, in fact, a perfect life in the sight of God, lasted all of 33 years. And ended in the unjust criminalization and execution of Jesus on a Roman cross. That's the possible outcome of the good life in this worsening world. How are we going to make it? How can we make it? Keep at it. Same as Jesus, as we've been seeing. We keep at it by faith in the present and promised grace of God to us. How was it, think again, chapter 2, verse 23, how was it that Jesus endured the cross with such gracious submissiveness? He did it by continuing to what? Entrust himself, Peter said, to him 
who judges justly. Jesus knew that despite his circumstances, maybe even on account of them, that God was still for him. It was not so evident when he was nailed to a tree, but it was something that Jesus believed to be the case, a belief that has been vindicated in the resurrection. Jesus knew that he could trust his Father to know him and to note his plight and to care for his good, to seek his justification, to judge the wicked, and in sum, to do what was right so that Jesus was then free not to be the lion that he will be, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew the justice of God promised to him to be true and inevitable. And so he was free and content to be completely self-sacrificial and gracious to his audience even while he was nailed to the cross. And in this psalm, you see that we too, because of Christ, have the Father's favorable attendance. It says His face is against evildoers, but then by implication, He is for us. His eyes are on us for good. His ears are open to our cry. And so what Peter's saying here is, We do not live the good, hard life alone. But, like a child that puts out their hand to a smiling parent for safety and stability, so we have a Father in heaven who takes our hand with a smile and walks us through every mountainous mile of this life. Beloved, as noted, the good life can be the Rockies. It is not all smooth and downhill. It's not freedom from letdowns. It is not freedom from heartbreaks. It is not freedom from tragedies. It's not dodging cancer. It's not dodging miscarriage. It's not dodging abuses or rejections or crosses. The good life is not Listen, American citizens, it is not a self-fulfilling life, but a sweetly full life of walking in faith with our Heavenly Father. It's looking to Him even through swollen, tear-filled eyes, knowing He's looking after us, and thus us looking to be rich in grace across the board reflective of Christ crucified in every word, every deed, and every single relationship we have in this world. And this needs to be added. It's very much a linchpin for the good life that it leads directly to everlasting life. Again, Christ lived the best life ever and it closed early and horrendously at the cross. And if that had been the end of it, if that had been the end of Jesus, His best life, the best life, would have been completely and totally in vain. 
You see that? It would have been the most pitiable life ever lived, Paul says. And just so, if this good life of ours ends in the dirt, we have been terribly, terribly duped. But gospel alert here, our life does not end in the dirt. Christ is risen, and we too then shall go to be with Him in death and rise in time to a new creation. This is Peter's living hope. It's the anchor of the whole letter. This is a great part of the blessing we live for without which God's good life is simply a disastrous one. It's but a wasted life. But as Christ lives, there is a joy beyond the cross. And so the cross life is the risen life. It's the good life you want to live. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let them then take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. Prioritize gracious relations in here. Pursue them out there and persevere in them by faith in the grace of God to you. This is the Bible's good life. This is God's kind of good. And it brings us to the contours of the good life's grand stage. If you'll look with me. <coughs> Excuse me. Allergies, right? <coughs> So as we come to these contours, we find that Peter is bringing us full circle. Back in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter set the preaching of God's excellencies in Christ at the very center of who God's called us to be as his people. And since then, all Peter's been doing is constructing a pulpit made out of our conduct in the world. He said that how we behave, how we obey, how we relate to one another, how we submit, how we stand, how we suffer, how we sacrifice, this gives opportunity to verbalize our hope in Christ. One way or the other, it creates a stage for heralding Christ. And Peter's focus here is definitely on the other. Okay, It's on the opportunity that comes when the good life you live is yet perceived as a threat to sin's dominion in both the individual and societal heart. So we come to verse 13. And Peter asked this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The good life. To which it seems we might rightly reply, Who is there not to harm us if we do what is good? And Peter knows this, right? Uh, Peter has been harmed for Christ. These believers that he's writing to are being harmed for Christ. What Peter's doing is he's just giving people the benefit of the doubt. In general, common grace trains unbelievers to appreciate those who do them no harm. It trains them to appreciate those who, who do them good. Jenny and I have a really good relationship with an unbelieving family uh, that's appreciative of mainly Jenny (laughs) and how she has related to them. Jenny has created fellowship with them. She's listened well to them. She's conversed wisely with them. She's gotten them some flowers, like a little poinsettia for Christmas kind of thing. 
And when asked, because it's amazing, I mean, this is what's happened is they've started to ask her to come and like serve as a witness to their home refinancing and stuff like that. Like Jenny's gone and done it. She's been considerate of them. And over time, guards have come down. And along those lines, Peter's just saying that people still typically like being loved and considered. But, but, at some point, the Lord behind the love comes clear. And at that point, some will revolt. Sin doesn't take kindly to breaches being made in the status quo. And Jesus is the great breacher. Okay? His presence signals the invasion of another kingdom. The divine power that makes an atoned-for army of self-sacrificial do-gooders. The irresistible renewal of, of souls and motives and loves and lives with transformative applications at every level of society as we've seen through this letter all the way from the marriage covenant to the emperor's crown. Christians do more than mere good. We do Christianity. We do Christ's will. That's our good. We bear his heart. We do what's called righteousness. And as this comes clear, as Christ comes clear, that Christless soul, that Christless society is prone to reach for the hammer and the nails. And so the trials begin. And so Peter, realist as he is, quickly parrots Jesus here and adds us, verse 14, look there. He says, but even if you should suffer, what's he say next? For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And beloved, let us make sure it is for righteousness and not for sin, not for wrongdoing or for responding in kind that we suffer if we do suffer. Peter has made it very clear that we gain absolutely nothing by deserving the world's penalties. But by suffering them unjustly with endurance and grace. And as courage to this, Peter binds the blessing, see it, he binds the blessing to the cross. And that's very important for us to see. Because it lets us know that whatever trials we suffer, whatever crosses we suffer in this world on account of righteousness is not depriving us of glory. In fact, it's the very signature of it. So as the cross is brought to you, you just go on and you hop to it. You get to it. Have no fear of them, Peter says. Nor be troubled. But in your heart, Regard Christ, these are big words here, the Lord, not Caesar, Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, this is a mighty verse. 
It's nothing less than the triumph of grace. Right? It's not just when, when all the elements are perfect for a conversation, but when all hell is breaking loose against you, Peter says, then, fear not, don't be troubled, preach Christ to their souls. Hmm. That, ironically, is when the audience will be most captive most spellbound if when in the pain of being put down for Jesus, you look up to God, you take a deep breath, you stare into their souls and preach Jesus as worthy still. This is the good life's grand stage. A couple of words about it. You hear a lot about lifestyle evangelism. It's a, it's a quite necessary thing. Peter can't be more clear on that. Christian lives create a listening environment for the gospel of Christ. Or they should. It really should drive us a little bit batty to hear so much talk of evangelism without the slightest mention of godliness. As if the two were somehow separable. But so much of the church's problem, I think, today is, is crying, evangelize, 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 while living lives that denounce the gospel. Be saved, we say. From what? And to what? What are we showing unbelievers? To a selfish life? To a loveless life? Malicious, deceitful, envious, slanderous, fleshly, syncretistic lives? Lives that are steeped in independence and isolation and disobedience and self-defense and self-justification and retaliation and all kinds of sensuality, as Peter details it in this letter. No thanks, man, I'm already there. I don't need your Jesus. As one put it, we're losing a generation not because they are secularists, but because they think we are. Our lives exhibit our hearts. They exhibit our loves and they exhibit our lords. Do our lives exhibit a heart for Jesus? Do they manifest our hope in Jesus? It is necessary. But in the end, the good life alone is insufficient. Christ must be proclaimed. The unbeliever may stand in secret amazement at your enduring goodness all day long, but unless you open your mouth and verbalize the gospel, they could very well be amazed all the way to an everlasting hell. So, Lord enabling, your life gives a good look at Christ, but their soul needs the eternal gospel to be preached to it. Are you prepared at a moment's notice to defend your hope in Christ to anyone who asks a difficult spouse, a crude boss, an unjust politician, a violent emperor. 
the typical reviler, the post-truth deconstructor, the atheistic professor, the inquisitive child. My grandfather, he was in the army and uh, having participated in some wars, he learned the importance of being prepared. Even long into peacetime, uh, in his old age, he stored up supplies in the event it was needed. You would find water everywhere. You would find weaponry everywhere. I'll never forget being about seven years old and I was spending the night over there and um, this is totally off script, but I was spending the night over there and uh, had, 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 was sleeping in his bed that night and put my hand up under the pillow to just kind of do this number and came across a cold revolver. Weaponry everywhere. And spam. Everywhere. All over the house. Ready to be fried at a moment's notice. But the point is, he stayed at the ready to defend what he loved. Do we love Christ like that? Are we prepared? Are we at the ready to make a reasonable defense of the gospel? I can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, because why? If called upon to do so right now, are you prepared to do it? Because you have been called by God to answer just so that Christ came and lived and suffered and died and rose as Lord of all and that by grace He's won your heart, He's saved your soul, He's made you God's forever and forever with God then is all your hope and care. How then, if I can spin off the old martyr polycarp, can I do anything but bless and live and even die if need be for my King who saved me? Whatever the cost, only God's will be done. That's the topic of the grand stage. What of its tone? Peter closes this way. He says we're to do this as we might now expect with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Beloved, do you think Peter wants us to be gentle? Oh my goodness. It seems to him at least that gentleness should be a defining characteristic of every Christian, just as it was for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am gentle and lowly. And here specifically, that we're to be gentle in our defense of the faith. My guess is, we seldom pair defense with gentleness. I know our culture hardly markets the two of those things as a package deal. 
Everything seems rude, intolerant, insulting, and in a word, explosive. But in my estimation, in the Bible's estimation, little could be more diffusing of a defensive posture or more diffusive of Christ's posture than a trusting, irreproachable gentleness. When our hearts, being content with God's will, we just walk in His Word, trust in His care, and care more to honor Christ than to be honored ourselves. Care more to win a soul than to win an argument. People want to be engaged, surprised, as people. Even if they engage you as less than a person. And that means how we share the truth is as important as the truth we have to share. It'll be impossible for folks to hear of the cross if we're driving it home with the nails. And so ultimately our goal in taking the pulpit of bitter providence, whatever it is, and preaching from it the saving passion of Christ, is that afterwards, we might look back on it and still have a good conscience. See that? Did we do it such that the only obstacle between our Christ and their soul was their soul's condition and not our mouth's presentation? Gracious words drop like honey from the honeycomb. It's so sweet. Tone does matter on the grand stage. So unbelieving friend, right, the verse just beyond this one tells you what you must believe even now. That Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That was his work for all of us, and it's all our hope for you. And so just turn from your sins now. Trust in Jesus. He will forever reconcile you to God. You come and let us know about his work in your heart. Beloved, if someone asked you about the good life, what would you say? My hope is we now have a, a better grasp of God's portrait of the good life. Love this church. Bless our enemies and walk by faith in a faithful Father so that we keep at it and we never give up. And thus, that given the grand stage, we'd not fail to make much of Christ to immortal souls as gently as winning them requires. This is the good life that Peter is urging upon us as God's exiles and sojourners. It's the hard but enduringly holy life that rests in a living hope. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and do pray that you would grant it now to work widely, quickly, fruitfully within us. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.